we really love stories of hope in our world, and the movie business is making a killing on stories of hope. So think of some of the stories that we have seen in past years. I think of one movie series that came out that has an epic scene of hope. I don't know if you've seen The Lord of the Rings, the, the movie series, and in The Tale of the Two Towers, there is a scene that Peter Jackson, the director who adapted that movie from the book, he makes the scene, the battle scene of Helm's Deep, a 40-minute battle scene. It is not that long in the book. But for the movie, Peter Jackson, the director, wanted to make this a significant scene in the storyline as it was adapted to film. And if you remember that scene, if you have seen it, basically there is a city under siege and it gets really dark and it keeps getting dark, 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 until even the audience feels like we are at the edge of hopelessness. And everything in the scene brings us to that point where all is lost. We've reached hopelessness. And then, at just that moment, right at the edge of hopelessness, the camera turns to a hill in the distance, and the sun is cresting on the horizon. And we see Gandalf, the wise wizard on his horse, and the music crests. It gets louder and louder, and just as it hits its climax, we see an army emerging behind Gandalf, coming over the hill as the sun continues to rise beyond the horizon. And we know at that point, victory is at hand. And sure enough, they win the battle. Now, if you have not seen that movie series, I'm just letting you know, that I did not ruin anything for you. Just know, when you get to the edge of hopelessness, Gandalf's there. But I'm not giving away anything else. But it's a very powerful scene. Just recently, there was this movie, Dunkirk. I don't know if any of you saw Dunkirk. It told the story of how uh, the, uh, Britain had to evacuate the northern shores of France, and they had to do it very quickly. And they were sitting ducks while waiting to be evacuated. They were waiting for rescue, and while they sat there as lame ducks, the Germans had the opportunity to pick them off one by one with their bombers, and yet it was cloud cover that saved them as they waited to be evacuated. And in the movie, in the movie, we see, we see the situation on the shores of northern France getting darker and darker and darker because it doesn't seem like anyone's coming to rescue them. And then at that moment in the movie when, when the audience hits the edge of hopelessness, we see a commander talking, saying that rescue would come. And then the music swells, the camera turns, and you see an army of civilians in their boats coming to rescue the soldiers from the shores of northern France. And then the rest of the story is how that became the biggest evacuation in human history, right there on the, north, the shores of north, northern France. But the director had to bring us as the audience right up to that edge of hopelessness. Before the camera turned, the music swelled, 
and victory was at hand. Rescue was there. It's these stories of hopelessness turned to victory that grab us. And in today's story, as we move into our next scene in the Gospel of Mark, we come into contact with a couple stories just like that, where we get right up on the edge of hopelessness, and we find they turn to victory. So we, here's where we come. We come to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, we pick up with verse 21. Where we've been in the story so far is Jesus has calmed the storm. He's just cast out thousands of demons from a man living in a graveyard. And now this scene. Mark chapter 5, verse 21 through 43. Where we will see a story, two stories of hope. Let's read. Verse 21, when Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. And then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and he saw Jesus and he fell at his feet and he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and lived. Well, so Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Uh, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, and she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear. He told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering." While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they had said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why are all this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in to where the child was. And he took her by the hand and said to her, Talithia kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. If she was 12 years old, at this, they were completely astonished. He gave them strict orders not to, tell any, not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Two powerful stories that will end in victory. Stories of hope. Stories that really grab us, I think. Now, let's walk through it. Let's take, let's take a pass. Let's take the top layer of the narrative. Because here we see different different levels, different scenes of hope and hopelessness. The story actually starts with hopefulness. Now, we don't know how long this daughter had been sick. We know the woman had been 12 years. And they had both come 
to the end of their rope. And yet, they knew Jesus was here, which meant there was hope. Jairus comes to Jesus, may be his last hope, but hope nonetheless that this Jesus could do something. Remember, Jesus would, the stories of Jesus would have already circulated in this area of Galilee. And so they would have known about him, wondering just maybe, maybe this Jesus could help them. And so Jairus goes to Jesus, and he goes with hope. He's not going to Jesus hopeless. He knows it's possible that this Jesus could heal his daughter. So we're going to we start the story with hopefulness. This woman, in the same way, comes to Jesus with hopefulness. She comes believing that just maybe, just maybe this Jesus, this guy who has healed so many, maybe he could heal me. And so she goes to him, begging, wondering, maybe, maybe he could heal me. And what happens in the story is that it, it, we actually move right in to some victory. When Jairus drops down, begging before Jesus to heal his daughter, he goes with him. He walks, and they begin their journey. Can you imagine what was going through that dad's mind the moment this guy who had the potential of healing his daughter started walking with him? The other option was for Jesus to say, sorry, not today, and turned around and went the other direction. And yet here Jesus goes with him. That's, that's victory in that moment for Jairus. And then the woman, she, she, this is a woman who has probably been outcast from society. She spent all the money she has. She has no more hope, yet now she has Jesus in front of her, and she touches his cloak, just grabs a piece of his clothing, and all of a sudden, She's healed, freed of suffering. Wow. These are powerful stories of hope. But Mark, a good storyteller, doesn't leave us there. Now the stories work backwards for us. They actually now begin their descent downward into a spiral of hopelessness. Because after the woman is healed, what happens Jesus calls out. Jesus says, who did this? Who just touched me? Who just took power from me? This woman touched Jesus so that she could stay anonymous. This woman didn't want to be called out in a crowd. If you've always been bullied, or at least for 12 years, and everyone makes fun of you, and you have nothing... And there's the potential that you could be called a nuisance and put in jail or sent away. Or just maybe, or just maybe this Jesus, who you don't know personally, just maybe this Jesus would reverse the very healing he just gave you. Can you imagine what it would have felt like when you have been healed, ready to go on with your day, and the person who healed you now calls you out in front of a bunch of people, a bunch of people you don't want to know you were there. Because she probably had to fight her way to even get to Jesus. And now he calls her out. And he doesn't just call her out like once. He keeps looking for her. And she keeps hiding, and he keeps calling, and she keeps hiding until finally she drops at Jesus' feet. And she says, I'm the person. 
I am she. And I think right there, when she acknowledges, she publicly comes forward, we are experiencing, we as the viewers are looking in at her edge of hopelessness. Because I think in that moment, she believed all was lost. Mark even tells us she fell down with fear and trembling. You don't fall down with fear and trembling if you are hopeful. You fall down in fear and trembling if you are scared and at the edge of hopelessness. And that, that Jarius, this dad with this daughter, can you imagine what was going on in that moment when after this interruption, friends come from his house and say those words, your daughter is dead. In that moment, we as the viewers look in and we see Jarius now at the edge of hopelessness. Why in the world would anyone have hope after hearing their child is dead? You have no experience in this world of seeing children raised from the dead. And so Jarius would have thought what you and I would think. Then it's over. There's no more reason to keep coming. Thanks for what you, what you were willing to do. Because remember, she wasn't dead yet. She was dying. But now all hope is lost. And we're right up to the edge of hopelessness. And so in the, in the story... At this moment when the woman is now public, fear and trembling, and the news has come that your daughter is dead, we have now come up against that edge of hopelessness. And yet, almost like a double dose of hope, Jesus brings victory in the midst of hopelessness. More than the first round of hope. Because Jesus doesn't leave the woman in fear and trembling. He doesn't reverse her healing. He extends her healing. Remember what he said, Mark chapter 5, verse 34. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and freed from your suffering. This is a woman who would have been outcast. A woman who would have been on the margins of society. A woman who would have been isolated probably bullied for many years, a nobody. And now this famous man who can heal people just spoke a blessing over her publicly. And now she would forever be known in that town as the woman worthy enough to be blessed. He just took her from a nobody to a somebody in town. He just gave her a group of friends. And he blessed her soul and gave her peace. No, see, he didn't reverse anything. He extended it. He just turned the edge of hopelessness into victory. Only the way Jesus could. And then that dad, Jarius, they, they continue to walk. And they get to the home. They walk into the room, and Jesus interacts with this 12-year-old as if she's living. He talks to her, talks to her, and then tells her to get up. And right there, at the edge of hopelessness, her lungs fill with oxygen, and her heart starts pumping blood again. Color comes back into her face, and she gets up. 
That's turning the edge of hopelessness into victory only as Jesus could. And so these stories end, we come to the end of both stories with stories of victory. And they leave us in a really good place. Now let's take the narratives, let's take the stories and come underneath them for a second pass. Let's just walk through that again and maybe acknowledge some things that go, that go a bit deeper. So there's some things in the stories, these two stories, that we don't know, that we might do well to acknowledge. We're never told why. We're never told why these two people are suffering. We don't know how long this daughter was dying. And we don't, we don't exactly know what this woman had suffered before 12 years of bleeding, but we don't know why she has gone through 12 years of suffering. We don't know why God didn't answer her prayers for those many years. Every time she wrote a check to the doctors and then she kept suffering, we never hear, we never will know why God didn't heal her. I'm sure she was talking to God, the God of Israel, to heal her, to rescue her from her suffering. And yet for 12 years, this God of Israel did nothing to take away her bleeding. I don't know why. Mark doesn't tell us why. Jesus doesn't tell us why. I don't know why. And I don't know why God didn't answer the prayers of Jairus for however long his daughter was suffering before he ever went to Jesus. I'm sure as a synagogue man, as a religious leader, that Jairus was praying to his God. I'm sure that the daughter was on the prayer list. I'm sure that the whole synagogue had been praying for this daughter. And I'm sure they were praying day in and day out, night after night, for this little girl to be healed. And for some reason, she was never healed. And the Bible doesn't tell us why. So I just want us to acknowledge in a world where we want all the answers, here in this story, although we love the ending, we have no reason why the story started and went, played out like it did. We just don't always know why. And here is an example of that. We don't know why God didn't answer those prayers of rescue. But he didn't. But he didn't give up on them. He heals them. In the end, they're healed. Now, the thing we need to understand about the stories is that if we kept playing out the, the story of both lives, they both eventually died. So though this 12-year-old girl rose from the dead, within 80 years, I'm guessing by 92, maybe we'll give her 90, but within 90 years, 80 to 90 years, she was probably being put in a tomb, a family tomb, dead. And this woman, bleeding for 12 years, at some point later in her life, she suffered and died. At some point, she was put in a grave and died. These healings did not break the power of suffering. When Jesus took this little girl and brought her back to life, he didn't destroy death. That tells me that Mark doesn't put this story here as the story of hope. They point to that story. These two stories 
are left unresolved when they play out in the years to come. And Mark knows that. That raising, that is bringing a young girl back to life doesn't destroy death. But it does tell us something about God's project on earth. That's something, that's, I'm gonna, so what I want to do is I want to read a couple sentences that summarize where I want to go now for the next few minutes. Take a look. These two miracles give us a glimpse into God's bigger project on earth. Jesus came into the world to suffer, die, and come back to life so that sin and death could be destroyed and all things could be made right for those who trust him. These two stories were not the healings. They were not the miracles that would reverse darkness in this world. But they do tell us that God is in the business of reversing death and eradicating suffering. It does say what he is about. But it would not come by bringing back people from the dead. It would come by himself, by Jesus himself coming back from the dead. You see, God didn't look in on a world full of suffering and from a distance give a donation to the Red Cross and hope it all turned out okay. God said, I'm going in myself. And I will, I will interact, I will myself suffer, and I will reverse it by my power. Because I myself will live in it. And so Jesus soon will start teaching his disciples that this is what he is in the business of. That he himself would come to suffer and to die at the hands of evil men. Why? So that evil itself could do its worst and be broke. Check out what Jesus will say to his disciples in Mark chapter 8. Soon, we're coming to this soon, in the months to come. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days, rise again. His disciples had no idea how to understand those last few words. But his mission was to come and concentrate evil in one place to take on the sin of the world and then break its power. And then death would start working backwards. Then suffering can be eradicated from the world. But it would take God himself coming in to suffer himself. So, this then begins to play out throughout the New Testament that it was only by Jesus himself coming and going to the edge of hopelessness himself that he could bring victory. Check out this, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. The Hebrew writer tells us, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. It would take Jesus himself, God in flesh, to break this power. Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians, took this theme, this big idea, and he told the story of Jesus in just a few verses. One of the most famous poems or hymns of the New Testament. Here's what he writes. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God 
as something to cling on to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself to obe in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is, Paul is writing the story of God coming to the edge of hopelessness so that he could bring victory. And you don't get victory without going to the depths of hopelessness. And Jesus plumbed the depths. And now, there is no, no edge of hopelessness that can't be turned into victory. There's no edge of hopelessness that can't be turned into victory. Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he went through shipwrecks and beatings, when he went through the suffering of his body, he clung on to that truth that there is no edge of hopelessness that can't be turned into victory. And at one point in his life, as he was writing a letter to the Romans, he began to spill out that hope, ink to paper. And he wrote these words, declaring that truth. In Romans 8, 8 38 through 39, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is no edge of hopelessness that can't be turned into victory. Because the depths of hopelessness have been plumbed and they were turned around and reversed in Jesus the Christ. So you connect yourself to him, all is well and all will be well. So what does this have to do with your life right now? I mean, how does this apply for us? I got two, two applications that run in the same stream. First, is that when you stand at the edge of hopelessness, ask God for help and keep asking. So when the doctor says, you have six months, you just start asking God for 10 years. And you keep asking, and you keep asking, and you keep asking. Be persistent. God can handle it. And he can handle you being mad, and he can handle your joy, he can handle your celebration, and he can handle you asking over and over and over and over again. If a three-year-old, if a three-year-old has figured out that they can get what they want when they ask over and over and over, we would do well to learn from their example. Just keep asking. And you'll learn something about God along the way. Just keep asking. Because where else are you going to turn? You're going to write Ellen a help note, an SOS to Ellen or Oprah? Are you writing to the President of the United States for help? At some point, you've got to turn somewhere. And I'm saying that Jesus is a really good bet. And even if he doesn't heal your cancer on your timetable, you, you can't do better than turning to Jesus.
And maybe, maybe it's that, that your relationship right now with your close friend or your spouse or even an adult child is tearing at the streams and you don't see any hope. Well, turn to God and just keep asking. And you keep asking and you keep asking and you don't give up. That's a good place for our heart to be, turning to God in trust. That's a good place. Now, second application, taking that to its next, to its next, uh, its next step, is no matter how God answers your prayers, let your suffering lift your eyes to the see the light of Jesus on the horizon beyond death. Suffering will come. Some of you are suffering right now, relationally, emotionally, psychologically, or physically, or maybe a combination of all those. Your suffering is giving you a gift. It is teaching you that this world is not your permanent home. It doesn't matter how many medications you get, how many therapists you see, or how many books you read, you will not get away from suffering. This world, the promises of this world, for some type of utopian, non-suffering life, is a myth. And many people sell their soul to get a life without suffering. They sell their soul trying to accomplish a life of comfort and affluence, riches, getting everything they want, when they want it, how they want it. The world will eventually reject that kind of life because something will take over your body or there will be a relationship that cuts deep. Let your suffering move your eyes from your circumstances to the horizon of the light of Jesus because even if you have a perfect life with no suffering, there is a grave with your name on it. If Jesus doesn't come back, you will not escape death. And so all of your comfort will in the end be meaningless. This is why Jesus came to conquer the ultimate weapon that could drive us to hopelessness. So let your suffering move your eyes out to the horizon beyond your circumstances. That'll be a good place for your heart to be. Now, Let's find something, let's do something that will help us do that. Because that seems still a bit abstract. Seems a bit, uh, seems a bit dreamy. So let's use a prayer to help us get there. This isn't the only way to do this, but this is something that like, we can do today. Here's our next step out of all of this. Our next step is to convert 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 into a personal prayer. Into a personal prayer. So when you look at that passage, Paul uses the first-person plural pronouns. We and us. Take that scripture and turn it into I and me. And then pray that prayer. Pray that prayer. If, you, if your body is being eaten by cancer, pray this prayer. If you're dealing with diabetes or high blood pressure, pray this prayer. If your close friendship is falling apart, Pray this prayer. If you don't like work right now, pray this prayer. 
You see, I could keep going, and I could fill up my time in the sermon by continuing to give you all the examples you might have, but you get the point, right? If you're suffering, pray this prayer. Here's what Paul writes, making it personal. Therefore, I do not lose heart. Though outwardly I'm wasting away, yet inwardly I'm being renewed day by day. For my light and momentary troubles, they're achieving for me an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So I fix my eyes, not what is, on, not what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is is eternal. Let your suffering bring your eyes, move your eyes from your circumstances out to the horizon. Gandalf's on the hill, and he's got an army behind him. Let me pray for you. Father, we do not lose heart. We know that because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, death is now working backwards, and suffering is on its way out. We know that our light and momentary struggles, the pain in our bodies, the struggle of our emotions, the disorder of our psychology, that it is all being made right in your kingdom. And so we drive deeper into your arms. As we fix our eyes on what is unseen, which is eternal. May we see the light cresting the hill, knowing that in a hundred years, for all of us, it will all be well. Under the name of him who rescued us from death and our sin, Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen.